It is um, good to be here. Thank you, Van, for leading us in worship. That was a uh, beautiful set. Um, yeah, we're in this worship series um, called Four Days in Colossae, and we've been talking about how Paul is writing to this church that he had not been to. Um, he knew of their reputation. He knew the leaders in the church. He knew Epaphras. Uh, he knew Philemon. He knew some others. But really, he knew their reputation, and that was really important because he understood this was a very young church. This was a, a first-generation church. These were very young believers, and they were very faithful. And the church was growing in its faith, and it was growing in its works throughout the region. And so Paul, in his letter, as he opens up, congratulates them and gives great thanks uh, for, for their faithfulness and for the work that is being done that God is doing through them and in them. And he recognizes that and he prays that they recognize this and remember what they were taught. He, he Like I said, he never went there. But he knew Epaphras, who was a colleague of Paul, and Epaphras and Paul had talked. And so Epaphras had probably come back to Paul and said, we, God is doing so much in our midst, so much in Colossae, and so much in the area. And I'm sure he laid it out, everything that was going on, and the believers that were, that were growing and coming through this community. And then he began to articulate to Paul that there were some problems, that there were some teachers coming in, and there was some teaching that was beginning to, to cause some serious problems because these teachers were reaching out into other um, religions, other traditions, other faiths, wisdoms, philosophies, and schools of thought, and they were bringing in all kinds of stuff, trying to make kind of, kind of a Frankenstein's monster, if you will, of the Christian faith. That, that they thought we could bring all this together, all of these quote-unquote truths that are found in all of these different religions and different faiths and wisdoms and schools of thought, and we can put them alongside of the truth of Jesus Christ. And so it began to take on a life of its own, and some people were having some real problems with it. Epaphras in particular apparently had some serious problems, and he comes to Paul and he says, we've got some issues. And he wants your help. And so Paul opens up his letter as the apostle. I'm writing to you as an apostle. So he lays down his reputation as an apostle. Reputation is important. We talked about that in our first day. And then he goes into this incredible prayer of thanksgiving for the church. And he, he, he's begging them, as we read last week, to remember the supremacy of Christ. That there's nothing above or equal to Christ. That Christ gives us all that we need, all that you could possibly want for a whole and redeemed life, to, to have this sense of fulfillment, Christ gives it all to you. You don't need anything else. That's, that's it. That's all there is. And so he kind of reminds the church, that's what they had been taught, that's what they had embraced, and now there are these false teachers coming in that were beginning to kind of fracture this faithful church. So I was, um, I was um, visiting, they, some friends came over and they had some little ones. And they were, um, I mean, real little, like toddlers and a, and a, and a four and a half year old. And um, they were in our pool and they were you know, splashing around. And, 
And the little girl is like fearless. I mean, she's four and a half. She has never had a fear in her life. And she will just jump in anywhere. Well, they have these floaties now. You know, when I was growing up, the floaty was a styrofoam bulb that they tied to your back. <laughs> and so if you went in the water, what floats? Your back. So you're face down. This makes no sense. Well, now they have these things that go on both sides of your body. And they have, um, as you get better at swimming, they take some of the styrofoam out. They're just little sheets of styrofoam. And there's like nine different sheets you can take out as they get better at swimming. And I was watching this, and I'm thinking back, you know, on my styrofoam bulb days, and I'm thinking I probably would have had a much easier time if I had flotation devices on both front and back. And I also began to think about, you know, what is it like? Or do, we, do you remember what it's like, I should say, when you were learning something new? And how scary that is. And so I, I went back to, to teaching um, our daughter some time ago, because now she's 27, 26 years old. Can you remember? But I remember teaching her how to ride a bicycle. And I remember when the first thing that we did, I did it, I, you know, I thought, oh, we'll do this in stage, we'll do it in steps, we'll make it, we'll, in psychology I think it's called shaping. We'll shape the behavior that you need to ride a bicycle safely. So the first thing I did, like, I got her on the bicycle, her feet on the pedals, and she just sat there, and I held the bicycle from the handlebars, just so she would get used to sitting on the bicycle. This is what it feels like. And then I began to, you know, with her, with her feet on the, on, the, on, the, on the pedals, I would just kind of, beside her, slowly just kind of, you know, with the hand, my one hand on the handlebar, one hand on the seat, and just kind of guide her along so she can feel that what this was like to move. Now, we weren't going very fast. If I let go, she'd fall right over. But she was, she was getting an idea, this is what it's like. This is what it's like to, 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 to move on a bicycle. And then I said, now I want you to pedal a little bit. So she would pedal, and I would walk beside her, and we would move a little more, move a little more. And then she got better at that. I, I kind of got behind her and just held on to her in the back of the seat and let her pedal and I kept her up. And she, as she got better at that, you know what you do? You let go of the seat and you hold her. Or you let go of her and you hold the seat. And eventually you let go of everything. Well, we did that. And a funny thing happened. As she was pedaling along and she was doing great, she looked back and notice I wasn't there anymore. And panic. Panic. It was panic. Sheer panic and drama. She fell over. Tears, tears. Uh, how could you do this? I thought you had me. How could you let me go? How could you let me fall? Well, you were doing great until you turned around and looked. You had it. You were riding your bicycle. It took a little bit of coaching for her to get back on the bicycle for me to hold again and let her go and eventually I would let her go. Then I would kind of trail along behind her for a while and eventually she didn't want me there at all. Just go away. I don't need you anymore. 
As I was thinking about that, I, I thought about how we as people can be like children learning a new thing. Or we can be like people learning new things and how scary that can be. We will clamor, we will claim, we will desire, we will demand what we no longer need. What we, what we don't have. Now my daughter rides a mountain bike. Now she can ride anything. She rides a motorcycle. She's not afraid of anything. But there was a day, if I wasn't holding on to that bike, or she didn't think I was holding on to that bicycle, she would fall over in sheer panic. Paul addresses this peculiar thing about humanity. In the next part of our letter, chapter 2, our reading is from uh, verses 6 through 19. But before we get to verse 6, I want to read verse 1 through 5 for you because it kind of really, it, it makes a nice bridge between last week and this week. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1 through 5, For I want, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all of the riches of the assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. And I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul bridges this whole thing about the prayer and his prayer of thanksgiving. He begins to, in, in, in chapter uh, 1, he begins to introduce the, the problems and the issues that the church faces. He doesn't address them yet. He alludes to them. Now he makes this bridge to say, basically, I'm writing so that you may be in the faith, that you may be united in the faith of Christ. That's what he's doing. Paul's fear in his letters are about the church splitting apart over false teaching, false practices, unfaithful practices. And he will use whatever truthful and faithful means are at his disposal. Disposal, not disposable. Disposal. And will bring those in to his argument. And that's what he's doing here. He senses that this false teaching is beginning to um, create a rift and, a, and, a, and a, a schism within this little church, this young church. And he says, I want to encourage you and I want to unite you in the faith of Christ for the work of Christ that is going on in you and through you and for you. And then he launches into this, this next piece between six and verse, verses 6 through 19. Hear now the reading of the Scriptures. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have come to fullness in Him 
Who is the head of every ruler and authority? In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through the faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up with cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. May God bless the reading of the Word. Paul launches into this encouraging word about the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. And as I think about what he is saying, and I and I think about this whole notion that has almost eluded me. Every time I've read Colossians, this little phrase has somehow escaped me. And, and I want us to think about what Christ did on the cross, as Paul understands it and lays it and articulates it here in chapter 2. All those things that have divided us, all the sins, all of the pride, all of the self-interest, the greed, envy, hatred, misunderstanding, mistrust, idolatry, all of these things that have separated us from the relationship that we have been invited and created to be in with God and also created to be in with one another, all those things that have divided us that allow us a prideful position to look down on somebody else, some other people, those people, whoever those are. All of these things were nailed to the cross. They did not come down from the cross with Jesus. You know, there was there was a time in the church, early on in the early centuries of the church, where relics were very critically important. And um, there was um, Constantine's mother, Helena, um, went about the empire, and she went to Palestine to go and kind of retrace Jesus' steps. And, and you know, Constantine was the first Christian emperor. He began the process of making uh, Christianity uh, a state-sponsored religion, basically. And so Helena, his mother, was traveling around. She was a Christian. And she began to kind of piece together all the holy sites where Jesus lived, where he walked, where he talked, where he died, where he was buried. And she made a, 
pilgrimage out of this. And she found pieces of the cross, the cross. And since her time, which would have been in the early 300s, there have been other pieces of the cross that have been found and are considered relics. There were two pieces of the cross that were brought to St. Macarius of Egypt, and they said, we don't know which one is real. We, were, we thought this piece of the cross was real, and now we have this little piece of the cross, and it may be real. Which is it? And he said, well, we need to give it a test. We'll take both pieces to this woman I know who was very ill. And we will take those pieces one by one and have prayers over the woman who was sick. And whichever piece of the cross brings healing, we'll know that's the real piece. Relics had great importance in the early church. Another, it may have been Martin Luther who said that um, if you gathered up all of the relics of the cross, you couldn't fit them all in a boat and sell them back to Rome. There was just so many books. Truth is, it probably doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure it's gone. There wasn't, um, there wasn't treated wood back then. The cross is gone. The purpose of the cross had served its purpose. And that Jesus was nailed to it. And everything that divides us from each other and from God was nailed to it with Him. And He came down, but those sins and those divisive pieces and practices of humanity remained. Jesus was buried in the tomb to raise again on the third day. The cross was not. Kind of reminds me of a, of a story. Um, Leanne and I were having, uh, we were new to Fort Walton Beach, and we were sitting down for lunch one day. Our kids were in school, and um, we went to this, somebody told us about this little cafe in Fort Walton, so we went the first time, and we were sitting there eating lunch. And then um, a couple came over and they said, you are the new pastor, right, at Trinity? Yes, and they introduced themselves. And, and um, I had the first time I met them. It was great to see him. Like, we'd only been there just I mean, a short amount of time. And he had been very ill, uh, very ill, and had not been able to come to church for a long time. And they were just getting back in. And so we... It, Exchanged pleasantries for a moment, and then um, they went back to their table, and we continued to sit and eat. And then they waved by and left, and, and then um, I asked, the, asked for our ticket, and the waitress said, well, the couple took care of that for you. And I was fiddling around for my wallet. It's kind of like that. That's what Paul was telling us. Paul is telling us that all that stuff that Jesus took care of, all that stuff that divides us from one another, all that stuff that divides us from God has been taken care of for all of us. It's been nailed to that cross that has now died and decayed. It's gone. But in some crazy way, we continue to want to pay for it or we continue to want to cling to it. Reach back and feel for that hand that's holding us up that we don't need anymore. We want to pay the bill that's already been paid. That's Paul's point in this passage. 
that Christ is sufficient, Christ is supreme, Christ is primary, Christ has done it all. None of this other stuff, that's, those are secondary things. Christ is primary. Love, grace, forgiveness, that is the deal. That is the faith that brings us together, unites us, and encourages us to live together as a faithful community. To be able to, to express and reveal God working in our midst and growing in their communities around us. That is the work of the church, and that's how Paul understood it. And that's what Paul was trying to do, to remind the Colossians that Christ is supreme, Christ is primary, Christ has done it all. And when we reach back for things that aren't there, for crutches we don't need, for bills we can no longer pay, Christ has handled it all. Remember that. Lay claim to that faith. Live and be rooted in God's grace founded and revealed in Jesus Christ. That's all we need. And for that I give great thanks.